Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we hear from Patrick Graffini, co-founder and partner of Echelon Insights, a political research and analytics firm. He discussed the September 26th presidential debate and the challenges facing the Republican Party in a conversation with Shorenstein Centre Director Nick O'Mealy. My name is Nico. I'm the director of the Shorenstein Center here at the Kennedy School. Without further ado, Patrick Ruffini is a strategist, a thinker, and an organizer focused on data and technology's disruptive impact on politics and business. He, uh, I first met him in 2004. He was working on President Bush's 04 campaign when I was on the other side of the aisle, and he directed the RNC's digital strategy in 06. He went on to found Engage, a leading digital agency in politics and issue advocacy. He's, uh, despite starting in the digital world with me, he's moved into uh, polling and data. He's still rooted in digital, but bringing that experience and knowledge to polling and insights. He's the co-founder and partner of Eklon Insights, a research analytics and digital intelligence firm. He was among the very first digital strategists in American politics, and now he is among America's leading pollsters. I'm going to ask him a little bit uh, uh, later about last week, the New York Times Upshot published a piece where they gave four leading pollsters the same data, and they came to different conclusions. It was a really compelling piece about the way polls are put together, and Patrick was featured quite prominently in that piece. And so here we are, and I have to ask, for starters, about last night's debate. Patrick, what is your take? Um, so it just seems like the worse, uh, it, the more Donald Trump had to talk about himself, the worse it kind of was for him. And I thought for the, maybe for the first 15 minutes, you could have, you could have seen a world in which um, he unexpectedly dominated and won that debate in terms of he was on offense. Um, with interruptions to be sure, but he was on offense and bringing everything back to his message, um, which is what you want to do in these exercises. I, I thought going into the debate, I thought there was a significant risk um, that Hillary Clinton would fall into a rabbit hole of facts and figures. And although, you know, I mean, we want facts and we want a command of all of these different issues, um, we also don't want in previous debates coming off as the smartest person in the room has not necessarily been a good look for candidates. So I thought there was a significant risk of Hillary Clinton going down this fact checking, well, I'm actually right on point X, Y, and Z, um, whereas Donald Trump stuck to uh, very clear, very simple, very succinct, very easy to understand themes that really kind of um, uh, center around his appeal to uh, more working class voters than uh, we might see from a normal Republican. Um, and that maybe started, you could see hints of that in the first 15 minutes where he brought everything back to trade. He didn't seem to have anything else other than trade uh, sort of in his uh, wheelhouse of, uh, of messaging. It was all kind of ripped from his stump speech. But the minute Hillary Clinton, uh, which I thought very effectively, um, starts listing off the scenarios on his tax returns and what could it be, 
Uh, I thought that was very effectively done. I hadn't seen her do that as effectively uh, in her campaign appearances. And I think that that is a sign of good preparation when you're able to bring new material to the debate, which Donald Trump was not able to do. And as a, as a result, I think it changed the debate. He was on defense uh, throughout most of the rest of it. Um, he was clearly, uh, you know, had to, was forced to respond and did not pivot away from the serious liabilities that he has. I don't necessarily know. We now know he can't really cover them up very well when called out on them in a one-on-one, mano-a-mano, 90-minute debate. Um, But what mystified me is he didn't also then try to bring it back to his core themes on his issues, either on immigration, uh, did not talk about emails enough, did not, uh, I don't think Benghazi came up at all. I mean, in terms of the litany of anti-Clinton attacks. Um, so I don't think that was raised very much at all. And, you know, beyond that first 15 minutes of the debate, I don't think he did a, a very good job of uh, pivoting away from, uh, you know, what were some challenging moments for him. I do think we saw a number of pretty terrifying to poor uh, performances by him in the Republican primary debates. And yet none of those seem to really impact uh, the polling or, or the, the, the fundamental dynamics of the primary race. And so I'm wondering uh, what you are going to look for in the next few days, the next week, to see if this debate, if his, if his poor performance in this debate, what, what impact it might be having on the dynamics of the race. Uh, well, it's unclear whether, you know, it, it's actually very rare that a, a debate will actually change the actual trajectory of the race. Um, because I, I think that heading into this, most people probably didn't expect him to win this debate against as accomplished a debater as Hillary Clinton. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we can say that about her. She's not necessarily the most galvanizing public speaker, but she does well in these settings. She did well in the primary debates. Everybody kind of knows that Trump is not necessarily, uh, a, a, number one, the most fact-based candidate, uh, but number two, uh, is not necessarily, uh, does not have this deep uh, knowledge and breadth and command of the issues based on a career in public life. Um, so uh, it, it's unclear to me whether or not he really significantly fell short of expectations or merely met expectations. I do think Clinton, though, cleared the bar to at least stop some of the bleeding she has seen in her polling over the last couple of weeks. And what about, uh, what do you think of as the real story of this election cycle so far? You know, there's been a lot of talk about kind of the changing demographics of the country. I think that's one of them. I mean, I think that's one of them from the sense of we have two competing narratives of what what the changing demographics mean, both from the rise of um, the potential rise of a non uh, an increasingly less white electorate. Um, that is uh, contrasted against uh, Trump's activation of white working class voters um, in uh, the um, you know in the ABC Washington Post poll that came out over the weekend. He is up four to one. Uh, an historically unprecedented margin among uh, amongst white men uh, without a college degree who I should note, you know, I added a bunch of like uh, qualifiers to that. That might seem like a very small percentage of the electorate. That is 21%. That is going to be 21% of the electorate, um, which is about the same percentage as Latinos and African-Americans will be maybe a little bit less uh, than that, um, that, that are expected to turn out. Um, so he is activating, um, you know, you know, this group of voters in a way that certainly other Republicans have really haven't touched. 
before. He's certainly causing a whole, and at the same time causing a whole bunch of other folks to question their allegiance to the Republican Party this cycle, particularly at the presidential level, um, including a lot of uh, maybe people like me, uh, and including people like, um, you know, folks who are uh, uh, not, you know, more college educated voters are, uh, you know, kind of leaning Clinton. Uh, this cycle where they lean pretty decisively to Mitt Romney last cycle. You you have been a leading voice in the Republican Party for the hashtag Never Trump movement. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about that, about your sense. I've, I've seen you write about kind of the long-term potential negative consequences of the Trump candidacy for the Republican Party, but also but uh, kind of the flip side of that being uh, you know, you talk about the the uh, non-college educated white male being a significant part of the electorate, especially in swing states. That's right. And, and I think that um, I, I, what I am, you know, with um, with what we were involved with and never Trump. And I think it's sort of a, it's now very much still a state of mind that's going to I mean, everybody says is never Trump dead after this wave of primaries. And that, that was the question we were fielding from the press every week. And I'm like. No, it's not because we're still not voting for him. I mean, that's going to happen on November 8th. So I, I would foresee that happening until, uh, you know, until uh, November 8th at a very minimum. Um, but um, I, I think, look, I mean, I think it's a response to the fact that what has happened in the Republican Party to some extent is unforgivable in the sense of I personally believe that this election was the Republican Party's to lose. It's historically um, unusual for uh, a, a, the Democrats or the Republicans to be reelected to a third term. Um, that hasn't happened uh, since 1988, and before then it hadn't happened and since you know FDR. And we've had uh, three consecutive two-term presidents. Um, so um, I think that just that factor alone should have uh, rendered, and Hillary Clinton's relative unpopularity should have rendered this not an easy, no election is ever easy, but certainly for any other plausible candidate other than Trump should have been at least a lean Republican year. And essentially, it's been an opportunity that I've seen essentially been thrown away. And the fact that he is actually even competitive is indicative of that fact that any other candidate would probably be at least three or four points ahead of Clinton uh, in the polls right now. What, what do you make of the future of the Republican Party after this election, whether Trump wins or loses? What where does the party go from here and what is the potential long-term impact? So I think there'll be a lot of interest in uh, can we recreate the upsides of the Trump coalition such as they are with why and avoiding the downsides and is that possible? And with what kind of candidate is that? Uh, what kind of candidate do we actually, would we actually ideally need regardless of the question of whether such a candidate exists right now or not? Um, but as we, uh, as people are scouting and coming up with their ideal notion, uh, a lot of people had this notion that maybe a Marco Rubio would have been sort of this ideal candidate to bridge a generational divide. I don't know that it quite really worked out that way this year. Um, uh, but I, I do kind of wonder if there will be what, what shape uh, the attempt to actually bring uh, these white working class voters into the fold over the long term will take without some of the negative uh, consequences and without some of the negative rhetorical um, situations that Trump has, has had to get himself in. And has to what degree has that been a necessary prerequisite uh, for that realignment to take place? Um, but is there a positive sum realignment 
uh, that Republicans can do by combining the best of the Trump and the Romney coalitions. I think that will be much discussed after the election. I do, however, think it is pretty, uh, it's a somewhat empty discussion without um, a candidate that people can uh, concretely rally around. And I do think presidential candidates very much create their own coalitions and they do it on the fly in the moment, the year of the election. Um, and it's happening, we're seeing that play out right now. Um, but it doesn't happen very much in between elections. Um, beyond that, I think you've got the question of uh, the media and what the role is of the conservative media, both the conservative media and the mainstream media in this campaign in terms of the sense that a parallel universe is being created uh, in which facts don't matter. Um, and I would argue to some extent, um, you know, there are some uh, Bernie Sanders supporters who had a disregard for certain facts uh, fundamental facts about the math of the race uh, throughout the primary process, and you had a very contentious, contentious convention um, come about as a result of uh, sort of unrealistic expectations um, that happened. But to what extent is partisan media um, contributing to um, you know what the choices that we face, uh, the, the kind of dismal choice we might face as voters this fall? Um, but to, and to what extent does mainstream media bear responsibility um, when you do not cover, literally do not cover any other candidate uh, throughout the course of the primary other than Donald Trump? I want to return to this question of the media in a minute, but I want to go back to when you were talking about kind of the future of the Republican Party and this working class white voter. And, um, you know, Hillary Clinton last night, I think, uh, if the tax return exchange really kind of wounded Trump, the birtherism exchange and her calling it a racist lie really was, I think, pretty devastating, even among even among many uh, leaning Trump supporters. And um, in that in that vein, I kind of wanted to surface free trade and uh, NAFTA and TPP, which I think Trump last night was at his strongest in talking about those issues. But those issues, in many ways, the Republican Party has been the one championing free yeah. trade and that the resistance for the most part in policy circles has come yeah. from union Democrats. Yeah. And that's a real, seems to me like in terms of the Republican Party plotting yeah. its way future forward and, and, and engaging these, these working class white voters, they need some, some, some way of navigating that, that, that conundrum inside the party. It's really funny. Before Donald Trump came along, equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans believed that free trade was good for America. And they were, they're relatively speaking, um, both, uh, both sides that no, this is positive for America. Uh, and it obviously depends on how you ask this question, but there was a noticeable decline in Republican support for trade, uh, after Donald Trump announced his candidacy. And it's almost as if people are kind of fitting their views to that of the team leader, as opposed to using their policy preferences to guide their choice of candidates. Um, so I think that there's a powerful lesson in that. And I don't necessarily, has he aligned, realigned the politics of free trade? Um, I think the consequence of it will be that um, you will have politicians who are uh, are afraid, more afraid to make the argument in favor of it and rally people in favor of it. And as a result, um, will kind of follow what they see as a dominant trend that was essentially a dominant trend that was manufactured by a candidate. But I think this also speaks to the fact that Donald Trump, unlike any other politician in history, almost has a command of 
uh, an understanding of free media and urge media that no other candidate, I think, <laughs> running has ever had, regardless of how uh, politically successful uh, he ends up being. And, um, and uh, as a result, his ability to actually get his message across and be heard is, I think, far exceeds, what, whether that's good or bad for him, far exceeds that of any normal politician. And so to the extent that he has mainlined the anti-trade rhetoric, such that people are just afraid to make the argument and afraid to advance it in the halls of Congress because um, either they don't fundamentally believe in it, they're trying to follow leadership, and that's sort of uh, how a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, policy making uh, you know gets made, unfortunately. Although I do think you know beyond just Trump's mastery of the media. In Twitter and his use of social media has also been, I think, played a significant role in this yeah. race. I wonder if yeah. you have thoughts or observations on, you know, the di digital in some ways in this race has been pretty boring, yeah. with the exception of Trump and Twitter. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's essentially uh, we've stripped out all the interesting stuff I think from the digital campaigns, and it was always, uh, uh, you know, I remember as how uh, the conversations we used to have, and I'm sure. Maybe you had them less because you guys were pretty freewheeling, I think, in your uh, on your side. Um, but just like, how do we prevent the crazy things that our supporters are saying online from uh, negatively affecting us uh, or from rubbing off on us? And essentially, we now have the chairman of Breitbart running the Trump campaign or Breitbart itself running the Trump campaign uh, or a human version of of the Breitbart website as the candidate, in some ways more <laughs> radical than uh, any of his support, many of his supporters, um, a, in some ways a perfect reflection of his supporters, in other ways, in, in, in some ways more, uh, you know, uh, unusual uh, to put it uh, to put it chi uh, to put it charitably. Um, so I think it's this odd paradox of the candidate being so far ahead of the campaign in terms of message discipline and being so far outside the boundaries of message discipline. And to what extent that that has been a canonical given of all every campaign that you have to be relentlessly on message and scripted and do, to what extent do you think that, this makes it more likely that future candidates will feel like they don't have to be as aggressive yeah but they won't be as good at it and it'll backfire i mean it's like essentially someone else tries it who's not trump and then the minute someone else tries it who's not trump it has completely negative uh you know and unintended consequences i think his ability to just take the heat for all of his statements you know to the extent that um, we expect him to be unscripted. That is the norm. Um, and so to the extent that he gives a speech off a teleprompter or he sends a tweet that is semi-gracious, that's sort of the, it, that's, un, that's the unusual uh, aspect of this. And uh, the extent that he's not doing that, that he's not playing the reality TV star, you know, it didn't work out too well for Todd Aiken when he did that, right? When he made an off-the-cuff remark. Um, because for the most part, these politicians are trying to be relatively scripted and, uh, and everybody kind of gets that. But I think Trump is unique in that regard. What about, uh, you know, let's move in a little bit into the media here. I want to ask you about Lester Hall. But before that, keeping up with this idea, you mentioned conservative media earlier and then kind of Breitbart and Trump and Twitter. How do you how do you think about and assess the way conservative media has shaped this race? Well, the ironic thing about um, it's sort of um, there's sort of what the 
intended trajectory of all of this was supposed to be versus how it played out. The intended trajectory was that a rising conservative media, if you kind of were doing this analysis in 2014, would lift up a candidate like Ted Cruz, who had shut down the government, who had been obstructionist, who had no interest in, uh, you know, cutting deals with the president, um, had, had led this movement. Um, and what we and he was a doctrinaire conservative on every single issue and, and lined up all the conservative interest groups and all the people at, 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 at the table uh, from the conservative side. And how somebody who whose pure value proposition was ratings and entertainment value was able to supplant ideological considerations. Um, so I, I think that the um, kind of the you know key word in conservative media is not conservative; it is media, <laughs> and that's to what extent that that has proven. Um, and frankly, all the media has been rating, extremely ratings driven. Let's not let's not kid ourselves. Yeah, we have a you know the Shaughnessy Center has a third of five studies out last week looking at media coverage in this cycle that shows uh, two, two things worth noting in the context of this conversation. One is just an overwhelming volume of coverage about Trump as opposed to anyone else, um, whether it's in the primary or in the general, just overwhelming, a greater volume of coverage of Trump. But most interestingly, both in the primary and in the general against Hillary Clinton, um, uh, the media seeks comment from Trump more than 70% of the time on issues relating to the opponent. And so you have the media quoting Trump on Hillary uh, 70 plus percent of the time versus quoting Hillary on Hillary, right? And the same was true in the primary, uh, quoting Trump on Jeb Bush as opposed to quoting Jeb. I mean, had, if you could, if you could have foreseen a, um, a, a, a a counterfactual in which Ted Cruz had somehow overcome Trump or John Kasich had somehow overcome Trump in the final stages of the primary, they would have been the least scrutinized and covered nominees in history. I think the key factor in that in determining what happened was not necessarily the surplus of coverage that Trump got, was the lack of relative coverage uh, obtained by the other candidates that I think you know, redouble the sense like they're not winning, they're not relevant. Um, and I think that you have to, you, in order to beat some, you know, be, you can't beat something with nothing. And so I, I, I think that um, in terms of in a field in which, um, in a field in which there was no, there was legitimately no clear front runner in a field of 16. Um, in a field in which that happened, uh, normally what you have is you have a previous nominee and like somebody like Mitt Romney, you have an incumbent president or an incumbent vice president or uh, the son of a president or somebody like that running in a Republican primary and that's who tends to win Republican primaries. We didn't really have that in a real uh, substantive way, I think, with 16 candidates um, running. And so, um, you know, Trump with uh, you just substituted celebrity for those credentials. Let's pivot a moment here and just tell me, how do you think Lester Holt did last night? I think he lost control at various points. I mean, it, it kind of, I mean, I don't remember. First of all, it was by and large, I think, probably maybe because of that, probably the most entertaining general election presidential debate, I think, in history. I was just saying, like, the only thing that I've ever seen 
maybe I'm dating myself a little bit. The only thing I've ever seen that was quite that entertaining was the 1992 vice presidential debate with Admiral Stockdale. Um, but, uh, but, but but lost in that headline was, was, uh, was uh, right. Uh, but, but lost in that headline was also, that was a pretty... Gore and Quayle just went at it in that debate. I mean, so I don't, I don't know if folks remember that, but I think it was similar. And um, in the sense of he, at some level, midway through the debate, kind of was silent. Seems like through whole stretches of the first half of the debate, then felt the need because Trump was sort of veering outside the lines a little bit. I think felt the need to fact check him a little more. Also responding, I think, to some degree to the liberal pundits ahead of time really working the refs pretty hard and I do wonder if they won't be a little bit more of an effort um, to and because Trump was also I think Trump was complicit in this too in terms of not bringing this back to Hillary's weaknesses enough Um, so if we won't see a more maybe a little bit more on on the email subject a little bit more on Benghazi a little bit more on her um, policy decisions with regard to Libya, a little bit more on uh, the Russian reset and, and some of those vulnerabilities that I think were relatively unexplored, both because Trump didn't really bring them up all the time and uh, that the moderator didn't focus on them. So one last question, then we'll open up to questions in the audience. So get your questions ready. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, Molly Ball was here a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things she said is, you know, if you just looked at this, if you took all the names and media coverage, you just looked at polls, you would see a pretty boring race. And given your work as a pollster and, um, and you know, that kind of interesting New York Times piece about weighting the samples, what's, what's your take on the role of polling in this race and, and, in some, and also the way technology might be affecting or changing polling? Uh, there's a lot in that, so I hope I remember that all. But, uh, but I think that despite the sense that institutions are breaking down, that seems to me that the, at least the two-party system has proven remarkably resilient in the face of, I think, unprecedented strain and candidates that uh, 35% of Americans uh, both, uh, both 35% of Americans don't like both candidates. It's historically unprecedented. That number has never been above 10 or 15 um, and but a third party not making the debate stage, a third party not really seriously making an effort, despite you know a clear opportunity, despite polling that a Mitt Romney would have made it a very competitive, uh, been a very competitive third party candidate. Sort of my never Trump, uh, you know, maybe wish casting uh, uh, hat here a little bit, um, but. Um, uh, it's just striking to me the, the extent that party loyalty is still strong, despite that we have a very, and people are resigned to some degree to that these are the choices that they face, um, but also that the institutional Republican Party um, has um, some, at some level withstood uh, this assault on it by Donald Trump in the sense that all the Senate candidates, uh, all the Senate primaries turned out exactly as they would have had in a normal year. Um, you have candidates that are running well ahead of Donald Trump. You have Republicans yeah. at 50-50 uh, to right. keep the Senate. Arguably, so, in terms of the Senate primaries, it's the first cycle right. in almost eight years that there weren't establishment, uh, that the Tea Party or yeah. or the more conservative wings of the party didn't upset establishment right. candidates. 
So I think that 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 part of the Trump narrative is flawed in the sense of it's not a conservative revolt. It's the sense of there was a vacuum on the Republican in the Republican candidate side, and there's all sorts of things we can kind of go through. Uh, but to your question on polling, I mean these are these are just fascinating. It's really fa- it's re- these are really fascinating questions. I do think that um, technology is play- is going to play more of a more role in polling. I. Um, come from a less traditional background, uh, you know, doing some of this work now. Um, and uh, what I will say is that it strikes me as a little bit um, ridiculous that we need to operate for three or four or five or six days after a, a presidential debate in a sort of fe- in sort of a math-free zone in terms of what the impact was, because we were waiting for the full post-debate coverage to come back, and it is quite possible now to actually have at least on the online polling side, um, to actually have data back uh, much faster. And so I, I look, you know, I kind of look forward to not having, not to exacerbate the horse race coverage, but I, you know, if we're going to have horse race coverage, it should be up to date and informed horse race coverage. Is that if, as you said, I think in one of our conversations that it's 70% of the coverage, um, maybe that should be better from a media perspective. Um, I think data, uh, the, the advances in data analytics, um, uh, you know, certainly the ability to do uh, survey work at larger scales tied to voter files and tied to demographics will pres- ultimately present us with a much more stable race, as it's sort of hinted at in the polling, without all of these swings. But in some ways, there's an incentive for that not to happen. Uh, from a media standpoint, because without wild swings in the polling, what would we write about? That's less interesting. Yeah. Let me uh, let me ask you one kind of follow-up before I turn it over, which is um, you're incredibly uh, data-driven, and I, one of the things I respect most about you is how much you rely on data in assessing the landscape. But, you know, you're, you're also just a very clear-eyed observer with a few of these presidentials under your belt. What, what, in the absence of data, what's your read on how the public, especially kind of critical portions of the public, uh, received last night? Well, the initial, you have the initial snap polling, which suggests a Hillary Clinton win. To what extent you want to believe that? Um, it's interesting in the sense of, I mean, you know, and sometimes that does not necessarily have an impact. But I would, I would kind of go back to... Hillary Clinton either stopped the bleeding or will slightly improve um, based on this because Trump was not able, I think, to consistently present the best version of himself. And you could argue, and I think there have been flashes of that, but only fleeting glances of that throughout the campaign. But it does exist. But if he was able to string together 90 minutes of that, he could have surprised some people. And he still will have that chance in the, in the, in the upcoming debates. Uh, Mike's concern would still be there that maybe he gets religion a little bit after this, but uh, we've been kind of waiting for that for a while. Uh, so I'm, I've kind of uh, stopped <laughs> holding my breath. All right, questions from the audience. Tell us your name. And... Uh, uh, my name is Sri, uh, Sri Pulkarni. I'm in the mid-career program here. Uh, my question is, in 2012, there was a lot of talk about uh, expanding Republican appeal to minorities and other groups. Um, obviously, it's gone kind of the other way in 2016, yeah. with higher than ever voter turnout, um, and any any candidate who tried to do that was utterly crushed by Donald Trump. 
Uh, and a lot of the uh, elites and Republican leaders who said those things in 2012 are now saying, well, Donald Trump has touched a nerve. So if that nerve is bigotry wrapped in a reality uh, TV sort yeah. of format, uh, what can the Republican leadership or elites do to ever come back from that? It's a practical challenge, I mean, uh, in terms of, uh, and we could end up in 2020 uh, where there's not a Trump running and it's a completely normal candidate gets nominated. Um, but um, it seems to me that that calculation was done um, without sort of considering the primary process and who votes in primaries and, and particularly the realigning forces. I think that the demographic changes in some degrees at the presidential, at the general election level, have been zero sum in terms of uh, between the, the relative strength between the parties. Uh, you know, to some extent, parties trade voters. But that substantively changes the makeup of the primary electorate in ways that are positive sum for one side and negative sum for the other. And I think you've seen an influx of cultural, I wouldn't say socially conservative, but culturally conservative voters who are less tied to conservative doctrine and ideology, who are lower income, um, who aren't um, as, um, you know, all the folks who I think have joined the party since uh, George W. Bush became president, um, um, all the folks who voted for Bill, maybe voted for, last voted for Bill Clinton, um, and now are, um, we're not Al Gore and John Kerry didn't do it that well for, didn't do it, didn't do it for them. Um, and so I think that has substantially re reshaped the Republican primary electorate in a way that has changed uh, the model of who can win in a Republican primary. And it, it's more, um, you know, I think it's the recent Republicans. And so our sense of our model for who could win a Republican primary is the center-right establishment candidate. They always win against the sort of firebrand doctrinaire conservative. Everybody's sort of uh, adhering to this lanes theory. And meanwhile, Donald Trump is over here building a superhighway. I think, as, as I meant, as I kind of hinted at earlier, we will have to grapple with this question of, is there something good about the Trump coalition? Because ultimately, you need to build a co I mean, the coalition in, in a two-party democracy that you need to win is inherently not going to make sense in certain ways. And I think that's true. that was true of Obama, that was true of Bush, that was true of anybody who has won, that there is not a natural 50% majority for, I think, a, a very hyper-specific a, a, a specific worldview. And so I do think that the challenge is going to be, and I don't really have, uh, I wish I had the answer, but essentially like, are there any positive things we can take from this? Or do we just have to go back to the old model <laughs> and reset from there? Marcus? Um, hi, I'm a, a fellow here at the Shorenstein Center. And you said this interesting thing about, at least I think some Republican voters or Trump supporters, that they may look at the leader of their team and see that the leader is opposed to free trade, and they themselves then say that they're opposed to free trade without really maybe believing that or having thought much about it. I'm wondering whether you have a sense of people who are maybe not paying as much attention to politics as most of us in the room, whether, whether they expect a President Trump to be able to sort of bring jobs back or restrict mm -hmm. free trade in a way that yeah. benefits the American public? 
uh, probably the, the question of expectations of, of Trump is, is an interesting one. And, and this is like a, a quote that I, I has been going, or a couple of people have said it, it's been going around in the sense of uh, the media takes Trump literally but not seriously. In the sense of we take you know his statements and we're parsing his statements and saying he could never do these things. And his supporters uh, take him seriously but not literally. So to what extent will he be held accountable in four years for building the wall? If it's just kind of an, an affect, a feeling that we needed to make a statement about the type of person who gets elected president. And it's all a cultural statement. And at the end of the day, it's business as usual in Washington, D.C. To what extent does he get held accountable for that? Or to what extent does, were he to be elected president, I've had multiple people suggest to me he will be the greatest deal maker. I mean, or he has insinuated this himself. He is a great deal maker. And I thought that that was something the Republican primary electorate didn't want, is somebody to go to Washington and cut deals. But apparently they're also very pliable on that question, too. Um, but in the sense of I, I don't have necessarily a high expectations for uh, his voters holding him accountable for uh, this. And, you know, there was talk about when he might have flipped his immigration position, right? And um, uh, it, he might have flipped his immigration position and uh, to what extent would voters, uh, his voters, like defect or, you know, kind of, and there wasn't, like, you actually interviewed his rally crowds and they were all like, oh, it's all right, he needs to do it to win or whatever. We don't care. We still think he'll make America great again. Make America great and then, you know, just repeat that. So um, I think, to, you know, I think we underestimate the impact policy has. I mean, it's really kind of voting has become a cultural statement. It's become about affect. It's become about style. And I think that's, I mean, you search deep down, and I think that's probably true about, you know, people voting for Barack Obama because they want to make a statement about what kind of a changing country. And I think that's a positive, and I think, frankly, that's a positive thing if people want to make that, that statement. Um, but also being, to some degree, realistic about what you can actually accomplish within the confines of, of the system. Derek? Okay, uh, Patrick, um, uh, Barack Obama won uh, in 2008-2012 uh, despite getting only 43% of the white vote first time around and 39% mm -hmm. yeah. against Romney. So in reality, in normal cycles, given the how the electoral college works um, isn't actually um, the white house actually in theory should be the democrats in perpetuity that is a baiting question if i ever heard <laughs> one no, uh, there has been and i i, I kind of I, I did a few things that challenged this to some degree because i think that some of these uh in terms of uh, there's some very technical points on the exit polls that i won't go into but there are certain aspects of this that are overestimated in terms of the share of young voters in the electorate, although I love young voters in the electorate, but they are vastly overestimated in the share of the electorate and the relative underestimation of traditional voters. And that also meant that Barack Obama actually did better than he was given credit for among uh, white voters. He actually, I, it's by a couple points, but he got, the evidence was he got 41% and not 39 as reported by the exit polls. Um, I think it's a challenge moving forward. Um, what, um, what we have seen is that over the last 20 years, there's been an erosion in Republican Party identification amongst not just 
what young, you know, young voters in this room, but amongst maybe people under 40 um, in terms of they are not, uh, it, it is extending. I mean, you forget about the millennials who voted when Obama was elected. Some of those millennials are almost 40 now. Uh, in terms of they were in the 18 to 29 cohort then, now they're uh, 37, 38. So, um, um, so um, uh, in the sense of this is, they are going to be voting more and more uh, as part of the electorate. And the challenge for the Republican Party is to narrow that partisan gap. Now, they've been able to do that in the past with the baby boomers, and now the baby boomers are, to some extent, one of the most reliable Republican constituencies. But I think that uh, the demographic change theory just... In general, I think there are some very valid points to it. Um, there are just some things that should, I think, with some simple adjustments that, you know, any other Republican candidate other than Trump probably would have made uh, this election cycle um, that would have greatly improved uh, the margin uh, with, uh, with some of those non-white voters. But I think it underestimates the power of just attitudes and, and, and candidates sort of being held accountable for performance in office, right? I mean, we're not going to, one party is not going to hold the White House in perpetuity. I think I pretty much guarantee that. Uh, what, what can, in that context, that question and your answer, what, what is the Brexit, what is both the Brexit polling yeah. and the Brexit voter turnout tell us about, or does it tell us anything about this election? I kind of use the phrase margin of Brexit um, in terms of is, is Hillary outside the margin of Brexit or not? And I, I kind of put that at four points. Me being sort of a very, trying to be very precise about this and sort of becoming a UK politics and polling nerd, um, everybody kind of said, well, the, but they weren't really off on Brexit. Well, yeah, no, they were. They just weren't as, as far off as they were in the general election last year. <laughs> they were only off by four, but not by six. And so what is the inherent like sort of uncertainty around perhaps these issues of um, uh, racial resentment or xenophobia or and what is the uncertainty around that? Maybe Brexit, maybe that was four points and they overperformed by four points. Now, I would argue that there are some polling practices in the UK that are not maybe as robust as we would have here, not through any fault of the pollsters, but we just have far better voter data here in the U.S. Um, With which you can build better. better yeah, models. and so and that was what the upshot piece was about. Like you can instruct any kinds of, all kinds of different sorts of turnout scenarios, in some of which Trump actually wins. And so I think that it does nobody uh, any favor. What I think was true in Brexit was it does nobody any favors to dismiss or to try and spread non-polling pixie dust and say that, oh, all the undecideds are just going to break for the status quo in the end. Um, it does nobody any favors when you end up unpleasantly surprised on the morning after the election. So uh, we're just north of 40 days out. And how reliable do you generally think uh, likely voter models are at this stage in the in the game. Well, I think they should be used all the time. I mean, so this idea that we are, we're going to switch to our likely voter model sixty to ninety days out. I mean, likely voters are pretty much likely voters throughout. Uh, we kind of know who they are based on the voter file, um, and it's a question of what are you using to determine what a likely voter is, uh, uh, and uh, you know whether you're using data from you know actual 
historical election records or are you using are people opting in to take surveys and that can yield very different results uh, depending on the method all right next question hi uh, Christina Sharkey I'm a mid-career here at the Kennedy School and my question goes along with the likely voters uh, with such large negatives for both candidates do you anticipate a lower vo uh, voter turnout and what would the repercussions of that be the ironic thing is we don't really know. I mean, it's very tough. It's actually, we don't really know what vote. I mean, that's the one thing polls don't tell us is voter turnout. And I think the best pollsters can do is essentially construct different models for what does it look like if we revert to 120 million-ish turnout, right? What does it look like if it jumps to 135? Um, and I'd be very, I don't know if any ratings data has come out uh, since uh, about the debate uh, last night. That might, the, the interesting thing, and sometimes people have looked to that as an indicator of where turnout might go. Um, I don't know how much I buy that, but um, we certainly, it was an indicator of primary vote in terms of the shift to, to the Republican side. Um, I don't, what I can say is that um, I think this question of Voter enthusiasm is kind of misleading sometimes, this idea that, well, Republican voters are just more enthusiastic and therefore they're going to turn out and, you know, they're going to make up a higher share of the electorate and we need to unskew the polls from being plus five points Democratic to being, you know, even. Uh, is that, yeah, but there's just not enough of them, right? There's fewer Republican identifiers in the country. And there's only so many people who are enthusiastic about the election. And there are people this year, lots and lots of people who are going to vote, not because they're enthused, but that they're frankly scared and terrified of the choices that they have and want to prevent that lesser of two, you know, the greater of two evils from winning. Another question? Thank you. Uh, I'm Chris Enfeld, um, a Neiman Fellow and a correspondent with German television. You spoke about those uh, parallel media universes where facts don't matter. What has to happen that those universes come back together? <laughs> it's very, you know, it's like, I'm really kind of, I think in some respects, I mean, the internet makes you in some respects very idealistic about what's possible through grassroots organizing and uh, through movement and movement building. And I think that's sort of, that's a perspective I've had. It also has made me very fatalistic and cynical about trying to overturn what is essentially human nature um, in the sense of, I think that for the longest time, three broadcast networks and mainstream media kind of suppressed uh, the, tendency for people to self-retreat into sort of their own camps. Um, maybe to some extent the norms of the mid-20th century did, I mean, I'd be interested in, you know, to what extent did they shape, change people's behavior, and to what extent did they, were they just overriding a basic behavior? But one of the things we have consistently seen in digital politics is the strength of the grassroots base within both parties that was evident in both what happened on the Republican side and in the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, which wouldn't have been possible and solely based on if it were solely based on broadcast media alone. And, uh, you know, I would argue maybe uh, Nico, maybe today, but certainly earlier in his career would have argued that's a good thing. But there's also good and bad to 
to all of this. And I think that, um, you know, in terms of the types of candidates who could rise up from the back of the pack to challenge the, the political establishment. So let me ask you about a follow-up on that, because uh, part of my way of thinking about this is that when I was working for Howard Dean in 03, the Democratic base really tried to send a message to the establishment that they weren't happy with the direction of the party, right? That the primary uh, voters in, and the, that the donors to Howard Dean were overwhelmingly primary voters and kind of followed a model of um, of, of your standard dem longtime Democrat kind of core. Yeah. Uh, even though Howard Dean didn't win, they definitely sent a message to the establishment, yeah. and they, they couldn't quite defeat the establishment candidate, John yeah. Kerry. But in 08, uh, the, the anti-establishment insurgent, grassroots Democrat yeah. defeated the establishment candidate and ended up president of the United States. Yeah. And in some sense... You know, it, it seems like last cycle in 2012, Romney barely survived the primary because of some very aggressive anti-establishment challenges to the establishment. And then by some measure, I think you, I would argue that this year the anti-establishment candidate won. It's probably the only time anyone will ever say Obama is like Donald Trump. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but in that in that kind of historical vantage point. You know, you said earlier, it was like Donald Trump, everybody was trying to figure out their lanes, Jeb, the establishment, and Ted Cruz, and Donald Trump built a superhighway. Uh, uh, I think Donald Trump was, I mean, Cruz was in his own lane, Trump built a superhighway. But I guess my point is, in some ways, <laughs> Donald Trump feels like a fairly natural progression of the grassroots of the party being very angry and disenfranchised yeah. and disengaged from the establishment yeah. and trying to send a message to the establishment in some substantial yeah. ways, egged on by... I think on the right, a uh, a fuller and louder conservative media. Yeah, but it, it's interesting how little that is actually about ideology, and it's more about tone and affect and style. Um, and to me, I think that the well, real power. Right. I, I think it is about ideology. It's about right. the grassroots feeling like yeah. that the policies and ideology yeah. of the establishment so, is not reflecting what they. But, uh, but I want to say it's been co-opted by something less than ideological, or a candidate who is less than ideologically, who has maybe cynically adopted this, who maybe doesn't really believe it himself. But that's a, that's another point. Sure. But I think that the what the point I wanted to make was just like both Barack Obama and Donald Trump, and I, you know, I know there's probably all sorts of alarm bells going off, and how could you possibly compare the two? A uh, really interesting bit of polling an exit, uh, that came out of the exit polls uh, during the primary was that Trump supporters were simultaneously more pessimistic about um, uh, their uh, life and you know the condition of the country than other Republicans, and at the same time more confident that their candidate was the one who could fix that. Um, so there's this huge dichotomy of I think that um, you know this. Make America great again. This refrain of everything is going to be awesome. I mean, just flat out blanket statement without any backup to it. Uh, we underestimate how powerful that is in the same way that the hope and change narrative was very powerful. And so, to the extent that candidates, it's much more powerful when a candidate can fuse that anti establishment sentiment with some hopeful message. That change is coming. And I think like what is also unique about Trump is when have we ever seen a Republican candidate explicitly running on the idea of change? I don't think like, I mean, we have candidates who have been perceived as 
maybe, maybe the exception of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Um, but we've never seen them explicitly put change on their signs, right? I mean, they've never explicitly seen them embrace this brazen sort of very, what is in the end sort of a very hopeful, even though there's some aspects of Trump's vision that are dystopian, but he's using that to contrast that with himself. It's true. Like ben, ben, ben Carson was an anti-establishment yeah. candidate with uh, a non, like yeah. not a politician, but didn't have that kind of distilled message about the future. Yeah, and it was also a very effective sleep aid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back here we have another question. Hi, uh, my name is Sasha Romani. I'm a first year MPP student here. My question is, to what degree can you fault the establishment Republicans for fanning some of the net, for, 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 for fanning some of the nastier tendencies of Donald Trump. I'm referring to the fact that Newt Gingrich has long been a proponent of birtherism and that Jeb Bush himself has said that we could screen immigrants and accept only the Christian ones. Well, I don't think we've ever, I mean, I just reject the notion that we've ever seen, at least at the nominee level, a candidate who has trafficked in the same sorts of uh, you know, in the same sorts of narratives as Donald Trump. Um, and I think we see that in the ways that voters are responding, both the voters who are responding favorably to Donald Trump and the ones who are responding negatively to Donald Trump. There is not, this is not a positive sum. Birtherism, I don't believe in the Republican it is a way for, it was a way for him to stand out or otherwise, otherwise he was this, the alternative to Donald Trump. I mean, the idea that he was going to run as a, a sane, level-headed candidate, um, he would have just, he would have been another Ben Carson had he done that. Um, so the idea that he cynically, and I think cynically, embraced this idea, because let's not put aside, there are certain, there is a certain 30, 40, 50, whatever percent of the electorate buys into some of these ideas. But, you know, I think that the idea that he had another path um, and I think it was a path specifically for him that he chose to follow because I don't think he felt an alternative, uh, frankly, by following a more conventional path, he would have just gotten lost in the shuffle. So I think he, to the extent he calculated anything is I'm going to be bombastic and test the limits and test the boundaries of what I can say so I can stand out in a 16 candidate field. And I don't think there was much strategy beyond that. And that worked probably much better than he anticipated. And now he's had to dial that back a little bit, but not very effectively, I think, from last night's debate. Were you surprised that he didn't appear to be prepared to answer the birtherism question? Not surprised about any anything. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't want to be like totally cop out of the answer, but it seems like um, he has a pretty severe. I mean, you know. Diagnose something or other that you know I think prevents him from focusing. All right, uh, in our closing couple of minutes here, I wanted to ask you a very specific question about the night of the election. Is there a particular state or even a particular area of a state, precincts in a state, that you're going to be watching closely to assess what's going on? I'm never a fan of doing precincts or key counties because what you generally tend to find is there is a 
uh, yin and a yang within these states. And, you know, normally there's a, a, you know, Western Pennsylvania, but then the Philly suburbs come in and just completely washes out. But uh, in terms of key states, I, I mean, I do think Pennsylvania is sort of the, it sort of leans a little bit towards the college educated because of the Philly suburbs. But if he can flip that, that's going to be very difficult. Um, for Hillary Clinton. At this point, he uh, needs to flip Nevada. He needs to flip Iowa um, to the extent that those are demographically better suited states for him. Ohio already leans, right? He, you know, Florida could be, Florida, I mean, Florida would be a win to some extent against the odds because there's a heavy, you know, obviously Hispanic population there. Um, But I think the big one for Republicans in general is the sense of Pennsylvania maybe is trending a little bit back our way. Um, but let's, let's talk for one minute. You yeah. had raised in the past this interesting question of what's happening in Florida with the Senate race and the presidential. Right. Yeah, I mean, so um, and I'm going to talk about the resilience of Republican candidates. Um, you know, Marco Rubio, we do have a, a, an interesting test. Everyone's like, what if it had been Jeb? What if it had been Rubio on the ballot? Well, we actually have an interesting case study in Florida of both Rubio and Trump being on the same ballot and being in the same polls. Uh, Donald Trump is losing the Hispanic vote in Florida by over 40 points. The Senate race with Marco Rubio in it is a single digit race among Hispanics. He is running 35 points better than Trump's net margin amongst Hispanics. Um, And presumably that applies to some extent that is largely the Cuban community, which has been uh, traditionally Republican. But it probably applies to some degree to the more democratic Puerto Rican vote in uh, the Orlando area as well. And he's also running double digits stronger than Trump among African-Americans, but no difference among white voters. And he's went and his polls have him, I think, uh, six, seven points up. It just reinforces the notion that almost anyone other than Trump on the Republican side might have beaten Hillary. I would agree with that. Well, uh, thank you so much, Patrick, for giving us your time during this busy election season. This has been a fascinating, compelling conversation. Thank you so much, and I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.